I want to welcome you to the podcast. It's a walk through the Gospels with Pastor Steve. And what I'm doing is I have taught since 1993 at Fruitland, off and on, uh, the survey of the Gospels. And so I'm putting the information I've been giving to my students there at the Fruitland Baptist Bible College, making it available for you in podcast form. But I'm doing it before my people on Wednesday nights. So I'm hoping it to be a blessing, not just to students, but also to lay folks. The theme of this whole course comes from the title of John Stott's book, A Bridge Between Two Worlds. John Stott said that the way you communicate the truth of God's Word is get to know the world of the first century so well that you can see it the way it happened. But then we've got to build a bridge to this world, to this 21st century, and bring the truths here. So I'll be spending a great deal of time in this course giving those biblical backgrounds. We finished last week's podcast pretty abruptly with Jesus being laid in the manger in swaddling clothes, and my time ran out. So we'll be picking up from there. I'm using the Christian Standard Version, and we'll be starting in Luke chapter 2 in verse 8. In the same region, shepherds were staying out in their fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. Uh, I would recommend that If you can get a copy of the CSB Study Bible, it is absolutely, I believe, the best study Bible out there now. A lot of what I teach comes out of the footnotes there, even though I was teaching it before it was produced. But but you'll find that scholars are pretty convinced that the sheep that the shepherds were tending to were the sheep that were being kept to be used in the sacrifices in the temple. Uh, You can't keep sheep in, in a urban area, and it was hilly there, so they would go six miles, it was six miles from Bethlehem to the temple, and so these shepherds were tending the lambs that would be used, their lives be taken in the, in the sacrifices, and all of a sudden the angel shows up, it's as if the angel were saying, okay, you can leave those now, I'd like to introduce you to the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, so here we've got the angel coming to the shepherds. Uh, It's surprising that the first invitations to come and view Jesus were to shepherds because shepherds were so low culturally, they were not even allowed to testify in court. If you remember in our first lecture, I talked about the fact that Luke had one particular passion. He wanted to make sure that you knew that God's love and the gospel was for everyone. No one was left out. So he often identified the underdogs, those who would be neglected, and say they're included in God's love. Now pick up at verse 9. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you who is the Messiah, the Lord, for all people. There's that emphasis again. No one is left out. See, the Jews were looking for a Messiah, but they thought the Messiah was going to be their Messiah. He was going to come back and be their king and kick the Romans out and exalt them to the highest place in the the hierarchy of the whole earth. And he says, no, no, this is the Messiah. And I have good news of great joy for all people. And then he talks about the fact that he is a savior and he is the Lord. Uh, I would say this, the Messiah we got was exactly the Messiah we needed. We need a savior because all of us have sinned. We need a Lord Because let's just be honest, you and I are not big enough to be our own gods and you and I are not wise enough to be our own gods. So we got exactly what we we needed. And then in verse 12, 
It says this, this will be the sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. I mentioned to you that they, we know exactly where he was born. It was a cave there in Bethlehem. And the manger was a stone manger that he was placed in. And so here's a town of perhaps 200 people. And the angel says, I want you to go find the baby. Here's the clue to how you can find the Messiah. Go look in the cave where they keep animals and find a baby in a manger. That's him. So it's like, uh, it's better than Google Maps. You know, you just go there and you find that and you'll find it. Now, look at verse 13. Suddenly there was a multitude of the heavenly hosts with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. And when the angels had left them and returned to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go straight to Bethlehem and see what has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They hurried off and found both Mary and Joseph and the babe who was lying in the manger. After seeing them, they reported the message they were told about the child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary was treasuring up all these things in her heart and meditating on them. King James said she pondered on them. She had a lot to ponder about, didn't she? Hearing what the angels had said to the shepherds, hearing what the shepherds said to her about them, by the way, I mentioned to you in the very first lecture that what we have in the Gospels is divinely inspired eyewitness testimony. Luke was a good historian who sat down and got first-person stories from those who were there, and he sat down with Mary. That's why we have so many details about the birth in the Gospel of Luke. Now, in the next few verses, you might want to just pass over, but they really are important. Chapter 2, verse 21 through 24. When the eight days were completed for his circumcision... He was named Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived. And when the days of their purification according to the law of Moses were finished, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Just as it's written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male would be dedicated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice, which is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now we're told two things. He was circumcised on the eighth day. That's what the law required. I want to tell you something about our Savior. Uh, it was important that he be circumcised when the law said, because Jesus is the only perfect law keeper that ever lived. He was the perfect law keeper who died for a world of lawbreakers. But there's one little fact here too. The, the law required that on your firstborn child, your firstborn son, you had to offer an offering to God because God is saying, he's mine. And you've got to show me that by giving a sacrificial offering. So the offering that was called for was a young bull. Now, I don't know if you've priced bulls lately, but they're expensive. But there was an exception for poor families. If you can't afford a young bull, you can give a couple of pigeons. I mean, last time I heard, pigeons are always on sale. You can find them and they're not expensive. So what that indicates to us is that the home that the Lord picked for his son to be raised in was a poor home. This is all intentional. So Jesus is raised in a poor family. We're going to be told later in the chapter that they were, they were here he is born in Bethlehem. Jim Fleming is an architect that I studied under. He's convinced. Uh, he was in Israel 30 years. He's convinced that both Bethlehem and Nazareth only had about 200 residents in that particular day and time. A very small town. So here's Jesus, born to a poor family, born in a small town, raised in a small town. Now, now, let me tell you one of the advantages of that. 
I recently had my daughter and her family move from Brooklyn in New York to go to uh, Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Thank you, Lord. Uh, I'm grateful for that move. I'd been visiting them for almost eight years. Uh, there's a world of difference between the South and between New York City. New York City's bustling, you know, seven million people. I'm a Southerner. Southerners are by nature friendly. I got in trouble so many times visiting her. Every time she needed to go to the grocery store, I said, I'm going with you, and mainly because I wanted to pay. That's what daddies do for their, for their kids. And, and so I'd go there, and we'd get in line. But I'd get in line, and I'd start saying, how y'all doing? Y'all live here? Y'all live here? Where, where are you from? And, was, and my daughter was going, stop that, stop that, stop that. Because you don't talk to anybody in Brooklyn. It, it's a culturally offensive. So here's the irony. Seven million people and everybody's a stranger. You don't know the people that were in the building that you live in. Because the bigger the area that you're raised in, the less you know people. But if you're raised in a town of two, 200 people, I'll guarantee you this. You know everybody and you know everybody's business. So if you want to raise somebody up so they could understand human character, you put them in a small town. And here's Jesus in a poor family, raised in a small town. God is preparing his son. Now we come in chapter 2 to verse 25. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. The man was righteous and devout, looking forward to Israel's consolation, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he saw the Lord's Messiah. And guided by the Spirit, he entered the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to perform, him, perform for him what was customary under the law, Simon took him up in his arms, praised God, and said, Now, Master, you can dismiss your servant in peace as you promised, for my eyes have seen your salvation. He's holding Jesus, and he says, now, I've seen God's salvation. Holding that baby, he was looking at God's salvation. I want to make a statement that you may think is heretical at first, but it's accurate. There really is no such thing as a plan of salvation. Now, I, I have used gospel tracts and EE and all kind of things, and here's the steps they say to accept Christ. But folks, the truth of the matter is you're not saved by taking four steps. You're saved by putting your faith in a person, in Jesus. Whosoever believeth in him has eternal life. We don't have a plan of salvation. We have a man of salvation. We put our trust in the Savior himself. Now, chapter 2, verse 41. Every year his parents traveled to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. When he was 12 years old, they went up according to the, cust to the custom of the festival. After those days were over, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents did not know it. Assuming he was traveling in the party, assuming he was in the traveling party, they went a day's journey. Then they began looking for him among their friend, relatives and friends. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem to search for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all those who heard him were astounded at his understanding, his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son... Why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? He asked them. 
Didn't you know that it was necessary for me to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he said to him. There's a whole bunch here that I need to talk about. It says that Jesus was 12, and this will be his first trip to Jerusalem to go to one of the three-week-long feasts, festivals, it says in CSB. Uh, if you were a Jew and lived near Jerusalem, you were retire- required three weeks out of the year to go to the big, three big feasts, Pentecost, Tabernacles, Passover. You, you, you did that. You had to do that. But if you lived far away, like in Nazareth, where it would take nearly a week to get there anyway, you were required to go to one, and you got to pick which one you would go to. And what happened was this. Jesus' parents had as their habit, they picked the Passover. Now, those of us who know the symbolism of the Passover, how on that last plague, when God was about to deliver them from from Egypt, he sent the death angel to kill the firstborn. But he told the people of Israel, if you'll take a spotless lamb and put its blood on the doorpost, the angel will see the blood and pass over. Nobody will die in that house. What a picture of Christ and the Lamb of God shedding His blood and us being delivered from the wrath of God. It's a great picture of salvation. And it doesn't surprise me that that was the one they were drawn to. But it says he was 12. And let me explain. If you know anything about even Judaism now, at the age of 13, Jewish boys go through a bar mitzvah. If you're in Reformed, the more liberal version of Judaism, there's a bat mitzvah for uh, females. But what it means, at the age of 13, you become a son of the law. And so at age 13, you become a man. When you go to a festival, you have to do all the things an adult would do. So what parents would do, what fathers would do, is they would make sure that they would bring their children at age, their sons at age 12 to come with them because that was the year he said, now son, we're going to the Passover, follow me. Now this is what we do here. This is what we do here. This is what we do here. He was training him for the next year when in the eyes of the law, he would be a full adult having to do it all on his own. So they went there. They had a good time. They were traveling in a party. Here's a, I'm sure all the people from that region walked together because it would keep you safer, it gave you company. But I'm guessing, this is not in the Bible, but I'm guessing that when they traveled, they probably did what we do. The women went in one group and talked, and the men went in one group and talked. And so they took off on that first morning after they were going home. The whole group was going down the mountain. And they got down to the bottom of the mountain. This has been a full day travel. And Mary looks at Joseph and said, he's not with you. Joseph says, he's not with you. And then they realize, we left him. And so that's one day. So they have to do a whole nother day of travel. That's two days. And then on the third day, they find him. Before you turn Mary and Joseph over to the Department of Social Services. It's an easy to understand how that could happen. I mean, my wife and I raised five kids and we had them in church and and we counted a victory. We got four out of five home on, on Sunday. You know, we'd all, you know, because we'd be going in two cars and we'd both assume. So I can't tell you how many times we got to go back. We left one. <laughs> yeah. And so that's what happened. Well, they find Jesus in the temple and it says the teachers were astonished at the kind of questions that he was asking. But here comes the typical mama talk. Oh, I, I, I tried to give you that emphasis when I looked at verse 48. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like, do you know how worried we were? Can you just hear not, can you hear mama after losing the the boy for, for three days? And then she changed her tone. Your father and I 
have been searching. Now, isn't that exactly what happens? One minute, how can you do it? Your father and I have been talking about this. And then Jesus gives this answer. Didn't you know it was necessary for me to be in my father's house? Now, this is the only story we have from birth till 30. Why in the world would this story be included? Well, in Philippians 2, it gives us this insight into Jesus. It said that when he left heaven, he emptied himself and became a man. I believe that when Jesus was born and he was being held by his mother Mary, even though he was God in the flesh, he had emptied himself of his divinity in some some sense. I don't believe he was looking up at her and saying, by the way, I made you. I believe he was truly a baby who had to learn to walk. And had to learn to talk. So here's one of the questions that we need to wrestle with. When did Jesus come to know who he was? If he had to make a start just like we do. Well, the only answer we've got to that question is this. At least by age 12, he knew that Joseph was not his biological father. He knew that the heavenly father was his father. So we can see how he's grasping that. Now, the next couple of verses are the only bridge between here and the ministry of Jesus that we'll see later on. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. His mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with people. So it says four things that Jesus grew in. I've used this in the past, and it's a term, I don't know where I picked it up, holistic discipleship. And by holistic discipleship, I'm not talking about eating granola. Uh, I'm talking about it covers the whole person because can we talk about the Bible Belt South, what you find, Ivan, in, in America, is that we tend to be very religious in places like this, but what we tend to do is we tend to put our religion in a compartment. So Sunday, that's God. Monday, Somehow we don't apply anything we learned on Sunday with how we do business on Monday. And then you come Saturday night to what you do in entertainment and nothing that you heard on Sunday is applied to what you do because after all, church is church and business is business. Or or we, we tend to have these neat little sections and we don't. Now, what discipleship should be, discipleship should be when we make Jesus Lord of our lives and we have his word being applied to every area of our life. It's not just the quote spiritual It's every area. And so Jesus gave us a model in how we are to grow. We're to grow, it says he grew in wisdom. We're to grow intellectually. I tell my students at Fruitland, this is why you paid the bucks to come to Fruitland. So you gain some knowledge. We need to be growing intellectually, constantly learning. He grew in wisdom. He grew in stature. He grew physically. He grew in favor with God. He grew spiritually. But he also grew in favor with men, that is socially. Back in 1973, my second year at State College, I was involved with a group called the Navigators, and I was invited to be in an intensive discipleship setting. Uh, In that particular setting, my leader picked Luke 2.52 to set up the disciplines that were required to stay in the leadership group, the intensive group. And he took those things. Jesus grew in wisdom. So you had to maintain a B or above average in your academics or you'd be kicked out of the group. So that was part of being a disciple was being a good student. So he grew in stature. Our campus was about a mile and a half around 
And this is before the jogging craze began. And he required for six days a week, no matter the weather, we had to go out there and run around the campus and time how long it took us. And then we had to go to his dorm room and sign in that we did that. So he wanted us to have a physical discipline. So we had a, an intellectual discipline. We had to keep a beer above. We did the physical discipline to take care of our bodies. Uh, spiritual favor with God, my soul. We had Bible studies that we had to do, verses to memorize, and we had to do Christian service. So we did that. But the last thing was favor with man. And, and in this particular group, uh, we allowed our leader to look over our lives and say, are there character th flaws that we need to work on? Uh, is, there th is there things that need to be developed so that we'll be better in relation with others? Um, I remember two times I got dealt with. Uh, well, actually, there was two times on one issue. He, he felt like there was too much pride in my life. And so he came and very calmly and very humbly approached me about that and said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to everybody in this dorm who's a part of our campus ministry, and I want you to clean their toilets. And that was his way of helping me to work on my pride. Uh, well, before the year was over, he said, we still got a pride problem. And this was getting toward summer. And he said, so I'm going to have everybody in the campus ministry that has a car you're going to wash their car. So that was, that was part of what he did dealing with personality. But the thing that was most funny, I guess, when I look back now, there were only 100 committed Christians on the campus. And, and uh, frankly, I had taken out everybody I was interested in out of that group. You know, I mean, you know, just So what happened with the guys? We had formed, we actually formed a club. I hate to put this on podcast form because it could go viral. But 1 Corinthians 7 says it's good for a man not to touch a woman. So we formed the 1 Corinthians 7 1 club. <laughs> and we had rules. If you had a date, you were out for a week. If you were found holding hands, it's two weeks. You know, we had all this kind of stuff. So. But, it, but basically, what it was, it was the excuse to have fun and go bowling or go out and do guy stuff on Friday and Saturday night. So we were not dating. Well, our discipleship leader said, this is not right. You guys need to be dating for two reasons. You need to date because you better start figuring women out now. <laughs> because marriage is more complicated than you'll imagine. And so that was one reason we need to start dating. But he said, the other reason is this. Here, you've made a commitment that you would only date committed Christians. The girls in our campus ministry have made the same commitment. And here we've got a bunch of knot-headed guys hanging out on Friday and Saturday while the committed Christian girls are in their dorms every Friday and Saturday night. What a testimony. Would you like to come to know Jesus so you could be in the dorm on Friday and Saturday night because none of these guys are asking us out? So he said, you owe it to your sisters in Christ to give them a social life as, as part of our duty. And so he required us, he threw a party and said, you will have a date this Friday night and I will see you. So that's dealing with all of those areas. Now that growing in social skills, I'll just share it with you as a minister who's been at it a long time and what I've witnessed. I don't think I have seen very many ministers lose their churches over a doctrinal problem. I'm not sure if I can remember anybody. I have seen some ministers lose it over moral problems. But I tell you, the majority of ministers I've seen lose their privilege of being in a church or lose their church lost it because of lack of social skills. They couldn't get along with people. And here's Jesus modeling a fourfold way of pleasing God. 
wisdom, stature, favor with God, favor with man. Now, with the ending of Luke 2, we're going to move to Matthew chapter 3 and pick up a very interesting person, John the Baptist. So I'm going to begin in verse 1 here. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. For he is the one spoken of through the prophet Isaiah who said, A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord. Make his path straight. Now John had a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. And in that part of the world, they still eat locust as a delicacy, a fried locust. I mean, hey, can I, can I give you this tip? If you're going to eat locust, at least dip them in honey. So uh, he ate locust and wild honey. Then people from Jerusalem and all Judea and all the vicinity of the Jordan were going out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now, John tells us where the majority of the baptisms were happening and where Jesus was baptized. It was really the end of the Jordan River just before it gets into the Dead Sea, the south side of the Jordan River. Now, at the, in the Dead Sea at that time, on the northwest corner is a place called Qumran, which is a place where the Essenes had a commune. Now, the Essenes were not exclusively there. There was an Essene quarter in Jerusalem, uh, and I'll talk about that in just a minute. But let me tell you who the Essenes were and why they had withdrawn from Jerusalem to live there. The Essenes were begun by Levites who lived in protest of the worldly life of the current priesthood. When that Maccabean revolt that we talked about in the first week occurred, Simon Maccabeus became the high priest as well as the leader. But this broke a long-standing tradition. Until Simon Maccabeus, every high priest had been a descendant of David's high priest, Zadok. And so this was really scandalous that somebody outside the line of Zadok would become the high priest. And not only that, as they got power, they became worldly. This is the group that would have the money changing in the temple and the gouging people on the selling of sacrifices. And so these Levites who believed, who believed it was an illegitimate high priest and they were worldly, they basically withdrew. They kept a group of folks in the north, uh, excuse me, the southwest section of Israel in the Essene quarter. Uh, and we'll pick that up again later on when we talk about the Lord's Supper. I'll just save that for then. But mainly they went down to Qumran. Well, you can visit Qumran when you make trips to Israel. And what you'll find is that there was a lot of dunking going on in Qumran. They developed a system of cisterns that would capture all the rainwater. And they did a lot of ritual immersion. I had a, a friend of mine who was a Presbyterian pastor tried to convince me that immersion could not have been the way that Jesus, that the, uh, Peter and the disciples baptized people on, on Pentecost Day because there was not enough water to baptize 3,000 people. And I want to go today and say, did you ever go to Jerusalem? Because Jerusalem, the, the Jews then and now, there's a whole lot of dunking going on in Judaism. They had something called a mikvah. And that was a baptismal pool. And you would go in on the right side. You come up on the left side. So your feet, your dirty feet would be in one way, your clean feet. It's all ritual. But then you'd be immersed. And you could not, there's, there's still the remnants of huge baptismal pools on the south end of the temple right now. Because if, say, you touched a dead body, 
You couldn't enter the temple until you'd been immersed in a mikvah. Uh, after a woman had given birth, she couldn't re-enter the temple until she'd been immersed in a mikvah. The last action that a Gentile would do who was converting to, to Judaism is they had to be immersed in the mikvah before they would be welcomed into the temple because they had to wash the filth of the Gentile world off of them. And so here you've got this people. Well, one of the things that the Essenes did was they would adopt orphaned Levite children. Remember, John's parents were old when they had him, Zacharias and Elizabeth, and they were Levites. And it said John was raised right there in the wilderness. Now, we don't know this, but if you go and visit Qumran, they show you a little film. And it was produced by Jews, but they, they know they're trying to get us Christians in the, in the place. So they say, and then there was a man named John. He may have been raised right here because he was such an emphasis on immersion and cleansing from, from immersion. Well, let me tell you why the Essenes picked that spot there on the northwest corner of the Dead Sea. There's a, a, a cliff that's there. And remember, they did not believe that God was in what was going on in the temple. But they wanted to stay connected to the temple. And so that spot was the end of what happened on the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement, two things happened. The priest took one spotless lamb, slaughtered its blood, took it in the Holy of Holies, and once a year laid it upon the altar. But there was another one that he put his hands on that became known as the scapegoat. And that represented our guilt. And they would have a series of runners who would take... See, we not only had our sins taken care of, but you've also got to get your guilt away from you. And they would take that goat and they would run it through runners. They put a little red thing around its neck and they would run it through runners way out into the wilderness saying that God is now taking our guilt away from us. And that worked good when you were wandering in the wilderness and you were in a different place every year. But then they came up with a permanent spot in Jerusalem for the temple. They began on occasion to have goats with a red tie around them come back to town. You don't want that happening. So what they did was they came up with a unique idea. They ran runners due east, came to the cliff that was right there where the Qumran group picked their place to be, and they would do it, and they would pass it off. They would go as far as you could go around and yell and be heard, and they would come to the last one. He would come to the cliff, he'd put the scapegoat down, and then he'd push it. And it'd go over the cliff, and it's not coming back. The guilt was gone. So that's where they located their commune. But then they would turn around and the one who was the last runner would yell, it is finished. And the next one would yell, it is finished. And the next one would yell, it is finished until they finally got to the top of the walls of Jerusalem. And the, the man heard it and he turned to the crowds that were waiting for the end of this process. And he would yell, it is finished. And the shout of joy would go up because for one more year, their sins were atoned. Where John was baptizing, when he looked toward where Jerusalem was, the Jericho Road, looked just to the left of that, he could see that mountain that ended uh, the Day of Atonement. And one day, here's Jesus coming down. And he sees him coming to the water, and he calls out, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. So you see that connection there. Well, John was a unique person. We've already read about what he wore, camel's hair. We've already read about what he ate. But look at verse 5. 
Then people from all Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the vicinity of the Jordan were going out to him. What an incredible response. Now, you've got to remember, it says that the entire area emptied to go hear this man. He's in the middle of nowhere. It's not like drawing a crowd in a major city. They had to walk down treacherous roads and get to where he was. And yet the power of God was so there. This is an incredible revival. This is an incredible response. So John was used by God in a tremendous way. And I want to close this lecture by pointing out three reasons why John was so used by God. Number one, he was used by God because he preached a hard message. He, he, he talked about this is a baptism for repentance. Uh, later on in this chapter, there would be people that come to me and says, you brood of vipers, don't you call yourself Abraham's children. I, I don't think he took Dale Carnegie's course on how to make friends and influence people. But he, he, he gave a hard message. He said, don't rely on the fact that you're genetically a, a descendant of Abraham. You need to repent. Don't you sit and look in superiority over Gentiles because you need to be baptized as much as that Gentile in his last action before he became a Jew. And so he preached a hard message and people ran to him. Now, let me tell you an irony, and this is what I try to get across to my students at Fruitland. Satan likes to fool us. He likes to tell us if you really preach too hard, you'll run people away. You need to make sure that you don't offend people. Can I tell you what's happening? The churches that have watered down their messages are dying right now. You go check the records. The churches that are staying true to God's truth are the churches that are growing and thriving because people really want to hear the truth. A second reason why God used him, not only did he preach a hard message, but he lived his message. It talked about the fact that he went out into the wilderness to preach. It was like he was saying, don't you... Think that salvation will be found up there in the temple. Uh, some of y'all, like myself, remember when Elvis was still alive. And the last few years he would do concerts and then and it was filled with crazy middle-aged women you know, who were yelling for him. And, and then he would leave and the music would still go on. And finally there would be an announcer who would go, Ladies and gentlemen, Elvis has left the building. Well, I believe what John is doing by his choice of where he ministered, he was saying, ladies and gentlemen, come out of that. God's left that building. He's no longer in the temple. You come out to where, we got, we got to come to where we started. That place in the Jordan River where he was baptizing was where Joshua led them across to begin their conquering of the land. So it, where he lived, the, the clothes that he wore, Jesus said when he, uh, when he got a hold of condemning the religious leaders, they wear the fine clothes. And they get the best place at the feast. And here is John wearing camel's hair and eating locusts and wild honey. His life matched it. But one more thing that made his, message, his life so powerful. He pointed beyond himself to Christ. Chapter 3, verse 11. I baptize you with water for repentance, but the one who is coming after me is more powerful than I am. I'm not worthy to remove his sandals. He himself will baptize you with the Holy Spirit in fire. Now you've got to understand, he was so popular. If he even hinted that he was the Messiah, they would have thrown him on their shoulders. They would have marched up to Jerusalem and a mob would have come to the, uh, to the fortress and said, out of here, Rome, this is the man of God that we've been looking for. But he said, no, 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 don't look at me. Don't look at me. The one coming after me, I I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. I baptize you with water. That's the best I can do is get your bodies wet. But he'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And he very humbly pointed beyond himself toward Christ. Preached a hard message. 
lived his message, pointed beyond himself to Christ. Well, in the next podcast, we'll pick up with the very next event, which is the baptism of Jesus. And I look forward to being with you then, but I thank you for listening today.